Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my next guest, I'd like to begin by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback that you provide us on the show, as well as to encourage you to continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at RainCanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd very much appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, other people you know, even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is definitely and sincerely appreciated. Okay, let's begin the show. Let's start with a brief bio of my guest, Antoine Palmer. Now, Antoine was born and raised in Fort McMurray, the true heart of Alberta, Canada's oil industry. At 17 years of age, he left home to begin what turned out to be a 12-year journey to find purpose and meaning for his life, and which ultimately led him to become a Hindu monk and to traveling the globe. For several years, Antoine engaged in strict monastic practice and served at temples in Vancouver, Seattle, France and Germany. And along his journey, he founded a small monastery in Vienna that accommodated 20 to 25 monks in training and where he launched a number of business ventures to support the economic needs of the community. And that included the conversion of a 200 year old heritage building into a modern condominium suites, one of his early forays into real estate. And subsequent to retiring from his position at the Vienna Ashram, Antoine took a year sabbatical, after which he returned to Canada in about 2007. And at that time, he founded a consulting firm that led a wide range and dozens of projects from restructuring large-scale real estate developments, which were challenged by the 2008 economic downturn, to affordable housing and renewable energy products, to serving as a public spokesperson for Edmonton's Social Enterprise Fund. In 2011, Antoine co-founded Sustainable, the world's first green carnival, along with another company called Sustainatech, a technology commercialization company. And these companies inspired the addition of a, an appropriately named Hedge Against High Risk Ventures, which was a company called 
boring investments. All of which is to say that we've got a lot of things to talk about here today. Antoine holds a diploma in mediation and conflict resolution and a diploma in Indian philosophy. He is a former platinum member of the Real Estate Investment Network. He sits on the board of IDEA, which is Infill Development in Edmonton Association. He is the planning director for the Edmonton Riverdale Community League and chairman of the Pow Pow Brotherhood. He is currently residing in Edmonton with his wife and four amazing children. And he's an avid mountain biker and backcountry snowboard enthusiast. My guest, Antoine Palmer. Antoine Palmer, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Happy to have you on the show today. You're an interesting cat, lots to think about. So welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, Antoine, I like to, uh, you know, just really get the listeners uh, familiar with you and um, with my guests. And I like to start the first question always with, if you had a 30-second elevator pitch, what would it be? What do you do, Antoine Palmer? (laughs) It's challenging to make it concise, but basically we develop commercial real estate assets, mostly in the Edmonton region. And we're working to demonstrate how we can use commercial real estate development as a platform for city building and for building communities. So Edmonton, Alberta, Canada is not, you know, economically thriving as it has in the past. It's been through certainly the past three or four years of some real challenges. Uh, how are you, how are you taking your model and making it work in this particular, these particular economic conditions there? You know, it's funny. We actually haven't had any issues with any of our properties. Uh, we're mainly concentrated in, in retail. And so the retail sector in Edmonton has for a number of reasons over the last four or five years, um, been the least impacted. So, uh, you know, it may, we look smart in retrospect, but a lot of that was luck. <laughs> sure. But then there's another aspect to this that has to do with relationship and community and the types of projects that we do, especially with the projects that the newer projects we have underway and the projects we're doing moving forward, where, you know, there's certain kinds of buildings uh, that people just want to be involved with. And once the community is invested and there's a network and there's um, relationships, activities around a building, people are not inclined to move and, and occupancy tends to be pretty high. So, you know, if you think about buildings that have really robust co-work communities and innovation ecosystems and really cool local restaurants and cafes, um, they tend to be a bit resilient people because those communities want to stick together and they want to, and they're, and they have built a hub around a particular property. Um, of course, in the long run, they're all vulnerable to big macro dynamics, which is why it's important that we can't keep our head in the sand. And although over the last few years, our portfolio has continued to perform, we're very cognizant of the challenges of the 21st century and how they will impact many regions and specific and the specific ways that they'll impact Alberta potentially. And so that's a, that's a, a big area of interest for us. Let's dig a little bit deeper into this. Now we're going to go back, you know, where I want to go way back to how you got even on the journey of this. Now you've been a rain member in the past and, and I know you cut your teeth a lot in the rain room early on and, and now you're in the world of commercials. So am I hearing that you're doing commercial projects that, are built around primarily retail is 
is that what you're doing? Are you are you buying or are you building new? How is what is the model that you're actually using right now? Yeah, so I mean, I can put this into context a little bit. I moved. I'm originally from Alberta. I was born in Fort McMurray, and uh, I left Canada in '98 and moved to Europe for about ten, and then we came back in 2007. Now, did you move? Did you move to Europe with your parents? Was that was going on at the time? No, no, no. I was 19. I, I was a Hindu monk, and I moved to France as a Hindu monk, and then ended up living in a number of countries in Europe. Okay, so we're not going to leave that conversation alone. We're, okay, we're, we're, you were a monk. Okay, so uh, let's just put, let's put that one on pause for a moment. But I can promise you, we'll be coming I, yeah. back to the monk conversation. So yeah, it's certainly a bit a big part of the story. Yeah, but anyway, story. what I was going to say is that we came back here in 2007. There's so there's a, there's more kind of background there, but you were asking about. Our commercial the, the retail general yeah. direction of our portfolio. So at first, I'll, I'll give you the context. We started in 2011, 2012, I launched a couple social enterprises and we can get into that a little bit, little bit later. And I considered those to be high risk ventures and I have four kids. So I needed to hedge my bets a little bit. So I started a third company called Boring Investments. And we just were buying cash flow assets. So apartment buildings, strip malls, a little bit of office. And, uh, and so we did that for three or four years. And then, you know, by boring, we meant just really the focus was security and cash flow. But we happened to buy a few interesting buildings that met all of our boring criteria, but were still interesting buildings. And... Um, and so currently our portfolio is building on that. The buildings that were interesting to us were buildings where we were able to engage with tenants whose activities enhance the cultural fabric of neighborhoods. And so in one of our buildings, uh, we have a restaurant called Range Road. It's uh, one of the best restaurants in the city. Um, it has a spectacular ethos and a deep uh, local ecosystem philosophy that informs their, the design and their menu. And uh, so when we bought that building, we were able to help that restaurant double its footprint in the building, and we significantly improved that building. So it's become an important uh, hub in, on, in the 124th Street area in Edmonton and Westmount. And that was deeply satisfying to me. <laughs> so then we started to ask ourselves, how do we do more of that? How do we build spaces in the city that bring neighborhoods together, but also perform extraordinarily well on a commercial basis. And not only that, but can we, can we advance that initiative in a way where we're demonstrating the commercial value of culture? Because our argument here is that, you know, there's a lot of ways to develop commercial value, but one of the ways is to understand that commerce follows culture, especially in the kind of current uh, landscape where there's just more appreciation for quality and meaning amongst the younger generations and also amongst some of the older generations as well. Out of that direction, most of the stuff we're buying is uh, retail, but now we're starting to get into some development and we see that you can, uh, retail doesn't exist in isolation. It has to be part of a, of a diverse neighborhood to be really successful. And so our new development projects are mixed use. And so we're starting to build a multifamily product uh, in mixed use buildings with well-curated commercial uh, amenities. 
let me just ask you, you know, when you, you, you made the statement, which I thought was great, you know, commerce follows culture. And when you talk about the restaurant and supporting it in terms of its growth, did you have, did you happen to have a, a stake in that, in that venture as well? Did you have some kind of equitable part of that restaurant? In that case, we didn't. And, and where you're, <laughs> you're starting to touch on an interesting point there. In that case, we didn't. Uh, we, we, ha- we do have interest in some of our other tenants. Um, but the point that you're pointing to, which is interesting, is that for us to do what we want to do, we need three ingredients. Like to put a project together, for example, one of the projects we're working on right now is called the Gibbard Block. The Gibbard Block is a hundred-year-old heritage building in the Highlands, which is a neighborhood just east of uh, downtown Edmonton. And the building was in disrepair, and we we bought it and we're restoring it currently. And that's an example of a small prototype of what we're trying to do. So it's a ten thousand square foot building on three floors. The main floor has one of Edmonton's best local restaurateurs opening up two restaurant concepts and a little retail shop. Uh, the third floor is going to be an eight unit microhabitation bed and breakfast because <laughs> the, the building originally was a restaurant, the main floor and a bed and breakfast over two floors, eight units over two floors. So we're building eight units into the third floor and there, and this is our, our first real prototype of microhabitation product, which we're very interested in uh, to us. Microhabitation means small residential suites, but it's not about just taking a regular condo floor plan and scaling it down. It's more like designing a spaceship. It's how do you incorporate space-saving devices, movable furniture, and that kind of thing, multi-purpose spaces, so that small footprint residential units can be highly functional. And so this is our first uh, kick at actually building some of that product and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And so we have a, a local hospitality operator who is the head lease on that third floor. And then on the second floor, we're building out a shared co-work platform using our a new brand that we're just launching called Sparrow Spaces. And the reason we're doing that is because we want to have we want to have residents from the neighborhood, professionals in the neighborhood to have access to offices in the building. And there's also quite a lot of wellness services that are squeezed into small spaces in that neighborhood. And some of them have approached us. None of them are big enough to take on a head lease, but they would all like to have space in the building. So you can see we've got retail and culinary on the main floor. We've got hospitality on the third floor. And then we've got office that's deeply rooted in the neighborhood on the second floor that's this tiny little microcosm that, that creates its own dynamic. And um, so that's the kind of, those are the kind of spaces we want to build. This is all on the enhancing the cultural fabric side of the spectrum. Later on, we can speak a little bit more to the other side of the spectrum of the types of tenants that we want to accommodate in our buildings. And the other side of the spectrum is enhances the resilience of the regional economy. So we can get to that in a bit. I want to talk a little bit about the commerce following culture. Before we get onto the cultural side, I want to go back just to what you're even talking about right now, because there's there's a part of that where you also have to get a buy-in from your, I mean, not a, I don't want to say you have to get a buy-in. You have to attract a specific type of tenant that also follows that fundamental philosophy of commerce versus culture. And not all retail is going to do that. Certainly, you have to be, I think, select or in, you, you know, in having conversations or the relationships that you're creating with potential tenants and, and what their vision is and where they think they fit in that kind of a, a, a tagline, if you will, or that kind of a vision that you're trying to, now, have you had any troubles with that? Or do you, do you see that as one point of entry, uh, a filter, if you will? Yeah. Well, so that is the work. <laughs> That's why our business is a little bit different than the typical approach to development. 
there's a, a lot of work that happens in building relationships and curation. And, and this gets back to, because you're asking about the Range Road and, and whether we had an interest. In that case, we didn't. And I was saying that to put a project together like the Gibber Block, we need three ingredients. We need a property, we need capital, and we need an operator. If we have those three things, we have a project. What we find now is that if we've got the property and we have the operator, the capital is not an issue. So capital is not a limiting factor. If we have the property and the operator, well, we have access to capital. Also, in Edmonton, there's a lot of buildings and a lot of parcels of land that are begging to be activated. So <laughs> property is also not a limiting factor. So really, the limiting factor to create high-performing, uh, culturally relevant spaces, buildings, is finding enough operators who do meaningful work on one end or the other of that spectrum I described between uh, enhancing cultural fabric and contributing to the regional economy, but who also represent covenant. <laughs> and that's the problem. So really the lack is a lack of leadership. It's a lack of people in our community who are stepping forward to bring really valuable, unique, inspiring, meaningful ideas into commercial spaces, but who are also sophisticated enough to responsibly take on a three to 10 year commercial lease. And uh, so our work, first of all, is to find those operators who do meaningful work and represent company. In the case of Range Road, they very much fall into that category. In the case of Gibber Block, the operator that's moving in there, I can't say too much yet. They're going to do a big announcement soon. So I'm going to leave it to them to kind of let the cat out of the bag about that. But um, they're also a very well-established restaurateur. They have a strong covenant. But there are so many other... Especially Edmonton is a, is a city that's, in, that's just starting to define itself. And there's this thick layer of young, excited, intelligent, and informed entrepreneurship. But it's, it's a lot of those initiatives are still in very fledgling stages. And so we sit down with a lot of those operators and we want to bring them into our projects, but they might be lacking in some component that would, that's required for them to bring covenant to the table. And so that has us start to look at how do we expand the circle of meaningful operators who represent Covenant? And so, you know, we've taken a bunch of approaches to that over the last couple of years. And we've looked at ways to do kind of incubation work by bringing capital in to support new ventures, by uh, bringing in partnerships and resources to fill gaps in their operating capacity with their new projects. And so we do some of that work. That incubation work is very difficult. And so these are going to be slow conversations, but important ones. And so we're, we're involved in that conversation on, on the municipal level with all the different groups who are supporting that kind of work. Another way that we found to help operators who don't quite have covenant get into our projects is through by lowering the threshold. Because <laughs> if you think about the obstacle, what is it that is daunting to an operator who wants to take on a commercial lease, you can remove those obstacles. So we can do things like provide spaces on flexible lease terms. We can, we can provide spaces that are already built out so they don't, there's not a big capital outlay. We have, with our Sparrow Spaces co-work platform, we actually have a concept where a tenant can come in and say, look, I need three offices. I want to sign a three-year lease or a five-year lease, I need three offices right now. In year two or three, I'm probably going to need another office or two, but I don't know. It's also possible that we might sell our company to Car2Go 
or to some other you know company that's doing acquisitions, and then we'll sell our company. <laughs> so we might double in size or we might sell. We don't know because we're a, a rapidly growing new innovation company. And so we want to be in here. We'll take a five-year lease, but we might need to expand. So we can say, we can accommodate that. You'll be in this corner. We'll make sure that we keep month-to-month tenants in the offices next to you. You give us 60 days notice. When you need to expand your offices, we can do that right in place. So these are the kinds of things that we're trying to innovate around to remove the obstacles for the, the, the kind of more fledgling entrepreneurs in the ecosystem. And then with the, with the more established ones, we can bring in some support from a operations and capital side. And then obviously the easiest tenants to deal with and the ones that we've been mostly building our projects around up to date are operators who already represent that company. But that's an important distinction. That point that the limiting factor is the operators, unless you want to play the game of just competing for market share and bringing in national tenants and creating more 50 shades of beige, boring suburban product. Um, <laughs> not to criticize there's money to be made in the in that business. It's just not why we do what we do. So you use the cultural fabric. And I mean, when I think about culture in commercial and in retail, I mean, you're from, from my perspective. And if I'm hearing you is cultural in a restaurant scenario is pretty simple, right? Because there are so sure. many cultural flavors and foods and all the things that go with it. But in a, in a, in a retail environment, what does that speak to culturally? So then you have to get very specific and, and I don't know what that would look like, but then on top of it, you've got, you know, separate offices that you're trying to rent and not trying to, that you're renting to individuals, perhaps that can't take on a bigger footprint. Got it. That makes total sense. That's not a new model, but I can see where you're folding it into a bigger picture. That's kind of cool. I find it all fascinating, but one of the things, so this is a really, I love the concept that you've got, but I'm, Interested in a couple things, you know. Number one, you talked about a micro habitat uh, or ha- micro habitation in Edmonton. I mean, Alberta is like <laughs> wide open spaces, big blue skies. Like we got space. They I mean they got urban sprawl that they don't know what to do with. So you know, micro habitation to me, you know, in a, in a world of Vancouver where I live or Toronto where I hang out. I mean, that all makes really good sense. Uh, Edmonton, it doesn't click for me. I'm going, wow, this is interesting. And, <laughs> and, and so I don't know if we want to dig into that a little bit more. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, microhabitation provides a, a lot. First of all, it's a, there's a specific niche market that places value on a minimalist aesthetic. And not just the aesthetic, but also um, the the kind of lifestyle that a minimalist uh, you know, environment can afford. Sure. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's affordability and there is proximity to the places that you want to be. So the Highlands, for example, it's one of the Edmonton's mature neighborhoods that's managed to retain its main street over time. And we don't have a lot of those. You know, most of Edmonton's neighborhoods are really separated. They're either residential or commercial. And to the extent that they do have commercial in them, they're parking lot commercial. So they're not the place where you're going to walk to it and you're going to probably bump into your neighbor when you go there, right? And so, you know, this is a, this is a dynamic that we see in our neighborhoods. We have 50, 60 years ago, proliferation of the automobile so that we've, we have um, cities being built around 
car transportation, and then all the commerce moving out of neighborhoods into big box stores and these giant ocean-sized parking lots. And so, you know, you live in a neighborhood now, you, your entertainment comes from your television, the internet, all of your uh, amenities are outside of your neighborhood. So there's very, there's very little, unless you go looking for it, there's very little likelihood of bumping accidentally into your neighbors. And so we end up in these silos and we end up in kind of on a, on a societal level, associating far more in a far more concentrated way with people who share our interests and share our background. And it's, it becomes much more homogenous. And so we're suggesting that great neighborhoods are neighborhoods where you have walkable commercial amenities. And none of this is new, right? This goes back to Jane Jacobs. And these are just basic principles of urbanism. But you can see it on the ground where it's, you know, neighborhoods that have walkable commercial amenities, that have spaces where neighbors bump into each other. These are dynamics that weave together the social fabric of neighborhoods. And the, the more we can cultivate these shared spaces that are valued by residents, the more there will be this integrity with the neighborhoods. And so the Highlands has it. The Highlands is a neighborhood that has one of the most active layers of leadership at the neighborhood level. They're a neighborhood that invented the Abundant Communities Initiative, which is a program that you can look into it's very lightweight, wonderful program that cultivates relationships within a neighborhood. Uh, it was invented in the Highlands. Now it's been deployed across 24 neighborhoods across Edmonton, and they're consulting to Fort Lauderdale and cities and other regions. And they have this three or four block strip of gift shops and boutique retail and coffee shops and neighborhood scale services. We've looked at surveys that the neighbor, the community league has done in Highlands, and 90% of the res- residents in their question what is it about this neighborhood that makes you want to stay here in 90% of them in their top three, it's this little retail strip. The fact that they could walk to a coffee shop and walk to a little cocktail bar. And so, you know, people want to be close to that kind of space and you can increase your budget. It's the reason that the suburbs are so prolific is because it's really, really cheap product coming into the urban center is more expensive, but you have access to a different lifestyle. You have access to different amenities and you actually can save a whole lot of money on commuting and parking and having to have extra space for your car and your tools. <laughs> so at the surface level, there is that dichotomy. It seems like why would somebody in a city that has no restrictive geology or geography, sorry, uh, in terms of like there's lots of land to be developed, why would people want to have smaller space? It's a function of lifestyle. It's a function of affordability. And it's a function of being connected to community. I love it. So it's a, a function of human nature. So, I mean, yeah. that that's that's awesome. Get the concept. And I, I think that you're being way ahead of your time in terms of Edmonton taking it on. And, and, and <laughs> I think, but I know I 100% get it. I love it. When you're on the capital side of it, when you're bringing these projects forward to investors, you know, are they also looking and are you having to, I'm assuming they're having to buy into the vision. I mean, they're having to look at it and go, I love this concept. And, and at least from their view of the world, agree with it or align with it aside from the math and what goes on in the risk and can they pull it off? Are you also finding that you're attracting investors that really just like the vision and and the concept that you're trying to present and in how you're doing it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, all of our investors are inspired and aligned with the purpose and the, the, the vision behind what, 
we're doing. And that's important to us too, because it's all about community, right? And so we're just looking for people who are thinking on some version of the frequency that we're thinking on. And when we find those people, especially when we find they're highly competent, have high integrity, we try to keep those people around. <laughs> and so we're constantly kind of just connecting with folks and weaving together this collective. And so, yeah, that is attractive to a certain type of investor. And then it's also a function, it also feeds back into how we attract to operators and tenants. So um, part of what we're demonstrating here is that we're taking an unintuitive approach, right? Like when I sit down with a tenant, if they don't understand net operating income and cap rates and how it contributes to property value, and if they have the interest or curiosity to learn about it, I want them to know. I want to remove information asymmetry between landlord and tenant, which seems like a, you know, not necessarily a useful negotiating tactic, <laughs> but it's just a function of transparency and trust. And so when I sit down with operators, I explain to them, look, you're 100% of the value. It's your activation of the space that's going to bring the real value. It's going to bring the value that the bank cares about, and it's going to bring the value that the neighborhood cares about, ultimately. And so, you know, that I'm basically saying, I'm basically kind of emphasizing to them their value to us as a property owner, which is, again, not necessarily a useful negotiating tactic. But what that does for us is because we're authentically having that conversation with them, they want to work with us. And so we are attracting operators who are doing meaningful work who have always had this weird feeling in the back of their mind that they're somehow getting exploited by property owners and landlords, which is not the case, but there's this curtain that they don't understand. They don't understand what's going on behind it. They don't see behind it. And so there's always this kind of capital labor class difference between the tenant and the operator. And so, of course, you can't educate every single tenant, but for all of those that have an interest to understand how their participation in the building impacts the performance of the building, we are eager to share that information and to increase the overall level of sophistication and literacy within all the stakeholders of this collective that we're weaving together. Is there a time where you have tenants that are actually investing in the building? So in other words, maybe they can. Also. Yeah, they're also, they're also, aside from the leases they're signing, they have an equitable stake, some shares in the building kind of thing? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. So one of the challenges that we have right now is early on, when we started off, it was mostly friends and family. You know, the, it was capital contributions of fifty to 500000 And so we had a pretty dynamic little community of investors that funded our, our first round of projects. And now we're, we're doing larger projects and we have accredited investors who will write a single check to do a whole project. And it's hard to mix the small investors up with the big ones because of administrative complexity and cost and because of securities complexity. And so at the moment, we haven't really taken it on, but we are committed to solve this problem. We want a broad range of stakeholders to be able to have an interest in these properties. We want our tenants to have an interest, which that we're still doing. But we'd also like for neighbors to have an interest. For example, in the Highlands, there all of these, we received tremendous support from that neighborhood. It was an overwhelming positivity, which is not the typical relationship that developers, developers tend to have with neighborhoods in Edmonton. Like they were throwing events for us to promote the project of their own initiative and wonderful, wonderful events. And so there's a deep already kind of interest and investment from the neighborhood in that building and a deep connection to that building. And we would like them to be able to participate in the equity. 
But that's going to be a bit of a project. And we're not quite sure exactly what the application will be. Maybe it'll be partnering with an EMD. Maybe it'll be a blockchain solution. <laughs> Somehow or other, we're going to address that. But yes, to, to your question about tenants, we want the stakeholders who have a relationship with the building, who are contributing to the success of the building, and who are participating in the services and amenities the building offers. We want them to have access to participate in the equity of the building if they want to. Dude, I just so love all of this conversation and what you got going on. That's, it's really cool. It's very exciting. And, and so, okay, so this is where I'm going to go back. Okay, so we've got a little bit, you know, I got a pretty clear picture and I love it, by the way. It's, no, I seriously, I do. I think it's amazing. The, the question now that I want to go back to is, uh, let's talk about how did you go from a journey of, uh, you know, emerging a monk and uh, to now being an entrepreneur and developer, business owner, uh, capitalist extraordinaire. Tell me a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah. So that was a bit of a journey. Um. <laughs> Listeners need to know. I mean, you're not an old guy, like you're a young man and, uh, <laughs> you know, four kids aside, you're, you know, how old are you now? Are you 40? 42. 42. So there you go, yeah. man. So you're a young guy. You've uh, had a really cool journey. So take me back to how you got on this path, because I know you were raised, uh, I think I understood is that you were brought up in Fort McMurray. Yeah, that's right. You're born and raised in Fort McMurray and, and then got out of Dodge at a relatively young age. And what, so yeah. let's, let's kind of, let's start there for a little bit. Tell me how that all got to be. Okay. So for context, yeah, I grew up in Fort McMurray. I, you know, I didn't really have a lot of influences as a kid. Like there weren't a lot of, there wasn't anybody around me who knew anything about business. There wasn't anybody around me who ever really demonstrated to me like a deep understanding of politics or economics or philosophy or how the world works in general. I just didn't have influences like that growing up. You know, I graduated in 1994. I was the valedictorian. I, and then I sat down and I was looking at past through, you know, um, university. And I just couldn't bring myself to commit to some direction. The question always to me was why, like, what is the point? <laughs> what am I trying to do here? I've got whatever I have 80 years or however long I have to play. What am I trying to do? And so I, that was, this, there was this deep existential question for me at 17. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm going to just move to Whistler. So <laughs> well, that makes years. sense. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So 17 years old, moved to Whistler, spent the season there. Um, it was, it was kind of like explosive in a, in a wonderful way. And then I went and spent another season in Nelson. So I actually brought a bunch of friends. Uh, we went that moved to uh, Whistler together. Um, there's a group of, six of us at first, and then several more came. So we had a little Fort McMurray posse in Whistler. And that group of friends, we all had question, questions along these lines. So we would sit around in the evenings and just speculate about philosophy. Of course, we had no idea what we're talking about. So after a couple seasons in the mountains, uh, three of us decided we were going to go to Mexico and go spend some time with Aboriginal communities in Mexico and learn about their traditions and, and philosophies. That, that was an area that interested us. So were you, let me just, let me just, I want to just interrupt a little bit here because I want to, first off, were you just, were you guys like ski bums in Whistler? Was that what were you doing there or, or just hanging yeah, out? We were, we were snowboarding. Yeah. Okay, day. great. So 
tell me a little bit before we get into you heading off to Mexico is, I mean, yeah. that's not a, I'll, I'll say it's an uncommon mindset. It's an uncommon conversation to be having with yourself at 17 years old, let alone with others. So, yeah, you know, what, what do you think led to that? I mean, where, where did that get instilled in you as a young man? Because at 17, gosh, let's face it. You're usually out, you know, how much can I drink without getting caught? You know, what girlfriends can I have? <laughs> you know, really? I, I mean, that's, that's a tour that would be more normal. And, and yeah. I, and I Not to certain- say that those weren't topical at the time, <laughs> <laughs> but the, I, I'm sure they were, but you know, so were you, were you being profound and philosophical to get the girl that could be become the question, but I don't get that. So you're, you're, you're on your way to, uh, having this, you know, to even ask yourself that question to look at 17 years old and go, gosh, I'm going to live for another 80 or hundred years. You know, gosh, what is my life going to be about? That's, that's a pretty big question at that age. So I'm just wondering it, can you put it, put your finger on up where that came from? Was it your parents, grandparents? Was it a book you read? Was it a mentor you had? Yeah, it's hard for me to say exactly. I think there's some aspect of this that's related to my grandfather on my father's side who was a pastor in Newfoundland. And so he was an early kind of, I guess, pioneer of the Pentecostal church in Newfoundland. So quite deeply involved. And then he had a big family. So my dad was one of eight kids. And, uh, you know, but my parents were never particularly religious. I wasn't particularly religious. You know, I read the Bible on my own from 12. I just started reading it to check it out. But, you know, that's there in the background. So that may have played part of it. And then I think a big part of it is just is just that this little group of friends that came together, I don't somehow we all had little pieces of these questions and we stimulated each other in these questions. And uh, one of the friends in our group was uh, older than the rest of us about by about four years. And he was kind of a deep seeker too. And he was just having these weird experiences, like weird dreams and kind of these mystical things that were kind of pushing him to ask these questions. So he was influenced on our group. And then we were reading, you know, Tony Robbins and, you know, uh, those kind of uh, sources. And so all of this was kind of informing this idea that somehow we govern our own lives and we can choose the direction, but then it's like, well, on what basis do we make that choice? So I'm not, to- I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but those were some of the elements that kind of were in the pot for sure. But I mean, it's, it's obviously run, it's been in the, you know, the weave of your fabric, even uh, to this day, that's part of your operating system that really is part of your design. So it's, it's, it's just interesting. I find it quite fascinating. So that's, that's cool. But let's go back <laughs> to Mexico. So you're off, you're in Whistler, you guys are having fun in Whistler, you know, solving, you know, life's problems and examining them all and <laughs> chasing girls and, 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 you know, snowboarding. So then you say, let's go and change the world in Mexico. Yeah. So this, the Mexico story is a long one. We never ended up making it to Mexico. We ended up meeting some monks in Vancouver and going and checking out their monastery. And we ended up, we spent two weeks there learning about the Vaishnava tradition. And we, at the end of two weeks, we decided we wanted to stay in practice for a while. And they agreed to let us stay in practice. So uh, that was 1996. So I moved into uh, ashram in Vancouver in early 1996. And uh, so the practice 
as a monk was that we would, you know, we follow some very strict principles like um, no intoxication of any kind, no alcohol or drugs or even coffee. No, we were vegetarian, uh, no gambling and complete celibacy. So for the whole period I was a monk, it was like actually complete celibacy. <laughs> and, um, and then our daily practice would be that we would get up at about 3.30 or 4 a.m. in the morning. We would start the day by getting together and like singing uh, meditative prayers as, together, which was quite a beautiful experience every day. And then we would meditate for two hours and then we'd get together and make more music together. Uh, the second round was a little bit more lively and upbeat. And then we would sit around for an hour and a half and discuss philosophy. And then we'd all eat breakfast together. And that would get us to about 10, 1030, something like that. And, uh, and then for the rest of the day, we would all have our respective roles, uh, service to the community. Um, so some of us were maintaining the garden. Some of us were in the kitchen. Some of us were doing community outreach. I was involved in a number of roles. I pretty quickly got involved in several kind of management roles. And then, um, I was there for a couple of years. Then I was asked to move to France to help out with the Paris temple. I was there for about six months and then I just lost my patience with the politics of that community. And so I, I, another monk and I, we were kind of traveling around France and we there's another there was a farm community run by Swiss monks, Hindu monks, but from Switzerland. But it was located in France. We connected with that community, and then we decided to open up our own little satellite ashram in Dijon, in France, which was about half an hour from that farm community. Uh, so we ran that for a couple of years. Then um, I was asked to move to Bavaria to help out and become basically vice president of a large organic farm and temple and ashram and with a bunch of buildings. Uh, so we did that for a couple of years. And all this time we were traveling a lot as well. Like we ran a program where we had a, a big custom built camper van with a giant Mongolian fire eater strapped to the roof. And we would go around to like folk festivals and rainbow festivals and skateboard contests and stuff like that. And we would, uh, we would set up camp uh, on the campgrounds and throw these parties in our tent and just have these kind of rocking meditative music sessions till 2am. And we could fit like 60 to 80 people around that bonfire. And so that was one of the programs that we ran. So we visited every single town in France and Germany uh, during that time. And uh, so that, that was about five years all in. And then I got married. That's a long story, but in the Hindu tradition, the, the, the first round of being a monk is kind of like going to school. Like traditionally, uh, the Brahmin families would send their kids off to what they called a gurukul, which they would be, they would go to study with a teacher somewhere. Um, and that would be for a period of a couple of years or more. And they would follow this celibacy and all these uh, principles. And then following that stage of life is family life. And so I got married after about five years. And then my wife and I moved to Vienna. And we started our own community in Vienna. So we, we built an ashram there and a temple. And uh, we, were we were training. We had like 20 to 25 male and female monks training with us at any given time. So that's where I started to learn about commerce and, and economy. So because we had this community that we had developed. And I had just got married. We had our first kid a couple of years later. And so we had economic needs and, uh, and the whole, and we were looking at 
the needs of that whole little community. And we're asking ourselves, how can we build a, an economic platform to support this community so that we can continue to dedicate ourselves to the things that we care about uh, that don't necessarily make a lot of money. <laughs> so that was the beginning. And I had no context. So I, you know, just, I started reading a lot of books and I started trying things. And so we launched a number of different companies. Uh, we launched a little vegetarian restaurant just off of Lassa, which is the main uh, retail street, one of the biggest retail areas in Vienna. We started an import-export business. So we would go to India every year, every other year anyway. And while we were there, we started going shopping. So I learned to negotiate in the bazaars in India. <laughs> and, uh, and then we would bring product back. So we had a wide range of product that we were distributing. First of all, we distributed to uh, temples across Europe uh, that needed various types of supplies. And then we started other types of products that we're bringing into health food stores and organic shops. And so we ran that as well. Um, and then I, I did some consulting work. So I got a diploma in mediation and conflict resolution. So I was traveling around doing that. I taught myself PHP and MySQL and HTML. So I was building websites on the side. <laughs> so these are all just, I really, these are micro enterprises. We really had very little sophistication, but we managed to make a living doing that. And during that time, I received the, this notion that uh, it's important to own assets, that if you don't own assets, then you're forced, the only way to make a living is to trade your time for money. And if you want to free your time, you need to build or own assets that will produce passive revenue. And so this was a seed that was planted in my head. And real estate was an asset class that given the sophistication I had at the time, I could wrap my head around. And so we did our first real estate project in Vienna. We bought three apartments in a 200-year-old building. The apartments were 200 to 250 square feet, 250, 300, something like that. They were very small. Uh, Vienna, 200 years ago, was the fifth largest city in the world. It was the center of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was a very, very densely populated and very expensive city. And so people lived in really squeezed spaces. So this was like an like a apartment for six to ten, eight, nine, ten people. These are large families, and it was 250 square feet. And it consisted of one corridor with a kitchen along the one wall, and then a room in the back. So the corridor was the kitchen, and they had retrofitted showers in the kitchen back in the early 20th century. <laughs> and the back room was the living room and the and the bedroom. And so we bought three of these, and then we proceeded to take those walls down and rebuild them up and turn it into a large 850 uh, square foot condo. And in the meantime, we worked with the uh, condo board to sell the attic to a Russian developer who built another floor on top of the building. And part of the deal we struck with them was that they would they got the they got the attic for for pretty cheap. But the deal was they had to completely restore the exterior and all the common areas of the building, <laughs> and it was a heritage building, so that was a substantial piece of work. They also uh, we all pitched in together and put an elevator in. And so this was a, it ended up being becoming a pretty complex and involved condo conversion project. Um, we didn't quite know what we were getting into when we started out, but it worked out really well and it was quite profitable. So that was the clincher for us. And we decided real estate was an avenue that we wanted to pursue. And uh, yeah. So, so, so when did you come back to Canada? When did, when did the journey bring you back into, into Canada after that? Yeah. So we moved back in 2007. In 2005, you know, it was getting to the point where 
we really started to have to focus on our family and, and kind of planning our future out. So I took a sabbatical and for that, for a year, I, we moved to Belgium and I, I, uh, I read, I enrolled in a college in the Ardennes in Belgium. That's a branch of the university of Wales, uh, that's dedicated to Hindu theology and philosophy. And all the profs are from Oxford and, uh, it was a pretty neat, uh, year there. And during that time, we just took a year I was studying, but we were just contemplating what is our strategy moving forward. So this is 2005. <laughs> so we're looking back at Alberta and thinking, man, if we want to do real estate, we should be in Alberta. <laughs> so um, the challenge, though, was that it took us a little while to get here. So when we actually got here, it was January of 2007. Oh, great. And <laughs> so nothing made any sense, right? Like we thought we would do something similar to what we did in Vienna here in Alberta, but Everything that's 200 years old in Alberta is compost. And, uh, <laughs> and anything that was old enough to be worth retrofitting had already been bought up on, in some kind of crazy multiple offer scenario. So there wasn't a lot to work with. So we had to pivot. And so we looked at a few options. One of the things was my dad and I wanted to look at doing some investment together. We never ended up doing that. But we thought, let's, let's see if we can find a way to invest together. And so my dad has a background. He built, he's built a lot of houses in his life, just kind of one at a time. We said, let's build some houses. And so I, my dad said to me, look, you don't know anything about Canadian construction because Vienna, it's all bricks and, and mortar, right? Um, so I went and I got a job at Winalta, which was a, mod, a modular housing company. And uh, I worked there for about four months. And I recruited my foreman to become a partner in our company. And so he moved me around every two weeks to a new department. So I did flooring, siding, electrical, plumbing, insulation, finishing, framing. I got a bit of a taste of, of every piece of the product. Of course, that's a very low range part of the product. Winalta has since gone bankrupt. It was not a good quality uh, construction. <laughs> but still, it was a good, it was a good uh, crash course. And then we launched a little company and we built, we, we just did framing. We framed three houses that summer. I remember one day uh, we were framing a house in Spruce Grove in June and it started to snow and it was cold. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's Alberta. It's Alberta. That's, you know. <laughs> and I was sitting there on this construction site in the snow and I was thinking to myself, there's no way I'm going to be doing this still in December. <laughs> but not just that. I also. Like just after a couple months in the business, I could see that there's this is no there's no less risk in this work than there is in trying to buy these overpriced properties. And so in the meantime, I started to get to know a few people in Edmonton. I really knew nobody here. And so I had started to connect with people in land development, which was a bit of a curse and a blessing. So I ended up doing a bunch of consultation work to land developers who were syndicating land development in the exempt markets, which was still a booming sector. I didn't know anything about land development. It was something that my father and I also were considering getting, trying to build product in some land development. So I started connecting with these groups. And then I, I was doing work for them, web development, sales, brand development, you know, and I just kind of ad hoc eclectic consulting contracts. And I ended up getting into these companies in a, in a role where I had some influence. And um, 
one of the one of my main clients, I became the director of communications because we had built a campaign for them that had raised. In the end, it ended up raising about thirty-two million bucks in eighteen months, something like that. And so there was all these new investors to this company, and there was a lack of infrastructure to report back to them and to be and to address questions and that kind of thing. So I basically built that out for one of my clients, and then that client. In that process, so me being in a role where I was representing the company to the investors, but also representing the investors of the company, it had me start to dig deep into the project so that I could report accurately to the investors. And when I started to do that, I started to learn more and more about land development, and I started to learn more and more about how these projects were fundamentally uh, insecure. And uh, that company, its first project started to fall off the cliff in 2009. I had about a year of insight in knowing that this was going to happen. So I, in, the, in that last year, in 2009, I was the only person that everybody trusted. And so I ended up in this role where I was recruiting stakeholders from these projects to form new general partnership groups to take over the control of the projects so that each of the projects could sink or swim on their own merit. And trying to bring that together to salvage what was still there in terms of equity in these assets. And that failed. <laughs> so we were close a number of times. But as you can imagine, these are pretty complex transactions where you have a new group of leadership that wants to take control and needs to take over the equity so that they have something to offer the capital that has to come in to get the debt off the books. But they they want so they needed to take over the equity and they needed to take over the control, but they were unwilling, to, obviously, to take over the liability due to the errors of the previous operator, and so that was complicated. And we came close a couple of times, but there was always a time window that had to be met, and we were never able to quite weave it all together in time. And so that was that was two thousand nine. I was sitting next to the accountant, basically doing forensic accounting for weeks on end. So I learned financial statements deeply. I learned, and I what I really learned is how not to invest in real estate. <laughs> and it was an expensive education. It cost me about $230,000, which was a lot for me at the time. That brought So that was up to the end of 2009. So let me go back a little bit and just slow the conversation down around, because I want to, there's a couple things that I want to hit on. I mean, for me, given your background and, and the journey you went on and in terms of as you were a monk and doing your training and traveling the world, doing that stuff, what I'm hearing in behind all that, even after you met your wife, is what you're doing today actually makes sense given the cultural and community and what you're building. I mean, you were really, I mean, you cut your teeth in that space of having relationships, having community, the ashrams yeah. that you've built and all of those things. So what you're doing really makes sense. I mean, and then it's, so I get how you got here. At least that, that's my interpretation of how you got here. And that I, I get that. The apprenticeship that you were on right up until what we were talking about in 2010, I mean, you're you're in it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, yeah. you know, so when you go back to, here's an interesting, for me is an interesting uh, look view when I'm listening and is you're dealing with the pressures that you're dealing with in this land development. And you know, not everybody is uh, forthcoming. Not everybody is laying all their cards on the table. You've got a, a very, you know, in, I, I don't, I will never profess to understand what it is to be a monk, but I mean, you've also got some pretty high moral standards and benchmarks that 
you're measuring yourself against and having conversation. So was there, was there often times where you're, you're, you're seeing what's going on over to the right and what's going on over to the left and you're somewhere in the middle going, but there are some things here that I have to deal with, with my own integrity, well, your integrity, full stop. And so is, is, I mean, was that difficult? Was that a difficult time for you, Antoine? I mean, how do you, how do you stay, how do you remain in integrity with yourself, given your training, given your commitment, given all of the things that you've, you've done in your life up till that point, And here you are dealing with other people's money, knowing that something's going to go off the cliff, knowing that there's been some decisions made that maybe they, maybe they were just really shitty decisions. You know, maybe somebody just was just dumb or perhaps somebody had something else going on. So you're, how was it for you during that time? Were you really torn? Were you lots of anxiety, yeah. sleepless nights, that was, kind of stuff? It was, it was devastating. It was devastating. It was, it was a case of, you know, working with somebody who, you know, 550 investors, some of them very sophisticated, a number of them senior rain members with, with eight figure portfolios, um, who all believe this guy knew what he's talking about. And it wasn't just bad decisions. It was a, f- a complete ignorance about the business and not just the business development, but business in general. <laughs> and then subsequently, we saw another 15 similar companies fall off a cliff. And even the last holdouts like Walton have just recently gone sure. into receivership. Right? Yes. So um, it wasn't just bad mistakes. It was what we saw was through the boom, a whole bunch of people looked really smart who had no idea what they were talking about. They made money for investors. Like this director of this company, he made money for investors during that period. So he had all this momentum because all these investors were trusted him and were happy with what he had done. And so he had all this momentum behind him already when I showed up to the table. What nobody understood who were involved with this was that it wasn't based, this company was not engineered to withstand volatility. <laughs> it was all built on the momentum of a, of a boom with massive margins where everybody was making money. And so the bottom fell out of that. And then I, I, you know, I didn't know what questions to ask. Like, this is the danger of coming into a business that has complexity and being naive. And, um, it took a while for me to understand what questions I was missing and to figure out what the answers to those were. And by the time 2009 came around, it started, what became clear to me first was not necessarily that the projects would fail. What became clear to me was that the timelines that the expectations that had been set in terms of when the returns were going to happen, because when the, when the land would be sold, were not going to be met even nearly. Like it was clear to me that what was, what was sold as a three-year project was going to definitely be a 10-year project. And so as soon as I learned that, as soon as I saw that, I went to the director and I said, look, we have to, we have to communicate this. I was sending out monthly reports at that time, right? So I, I said, I can't, I can't say that things are on track when it's clear to me that they're not on track. What are we going to do? And so my suggestion to the company was we should form a, a group of advisors that is made up of the main stakeholders in the investor groups. And we need to get the decision-making power away from just you because clearly you don't know how to run these seven projects all at the same time. 
And so the conversation started there. But once we had formed that advisory board, of course, the questions went deeper. And after a couple of months, it, some more information came to light that made it clear that, um, the, that at least several of the projects were going to fail. Ultimately, they all failed. So that put me in a difficult situation, right? Because it's clear to me that this train is going off the rails. There's a huge risk of liability associated with that. The longer I stick around, the more risk I incur of being painted with the same brush. And I am, was not in a position to be able to deal with that financially if I had to defend myself against angry investors. On the other hand, I was the only one at the center of these conversations. Like There was no functional communication between investor groups and the director or vice versa. And the director was taking my advice. So like he agreed to these suggestions. When I said, form this advisory group, when I said, uh, we have to be transparent about these uh, reports, it's clear to me that he wasn't deliberately fraudulent <laughs> with what he was doing, but he was incompetent. And there's some kind of, some kind of disconnect uh, in terms of being responsible. That might be a mental, like a psychological issue. So it's just like so difficult, and how to navigate that, right? So my my approach to it was just bring in all the people who are engaged with this conversation, be as open and 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 transparent as I can possibly be, and and do whatever I can do to salvage these projects. You know, that was kind of the line I walked. When I finally resigned. It was after the first project had failed. And I sat down with the principal and I said to him, look, you've got two options. <laughs> One option, which is probably not advisable from a legal and business perspective, is to come out being genuinely transparent and open, admitting, taking responsibility for the mistakes that you made, communicating how the project failed, and making an effort to compensate those investors. And there were a couple ways at that time before all the other projects failed that there might've been a way to salvage some equity. It would have been a, a, a pennies on the dollar, but at least something back to the investors. That's one option you could take. And I said to him, if, that's the, if you take that position, I will continue to serve as the director of communications and continue to try to broker solutions. The other option is don't say anything because anything you've, Anything you communicate will be used as ammunition against you. And, but if that's the way you want to go, I can't be involved. And so we sat down, we had that conversation, and he agreed to the first option. So I said to him, okay, then I'll draft a report that, that you'll get to review that will articulate all of the ways that this project went sideways and how you were responsible. And he, he said, okay, do that. In the meantime, he talked to his lawyer, who, of course, said, you can't do that. <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> but I had already advised all the investors that this report was coming. And so, <laughs> so he came back to me and he said, I can't do it. And I said, okay, then I resign. But in the meantime, uh, this report had been drafted and I couldn't send it out. So I resigned and I said, I said you know, this report's not going to come out and I'm therefore resigning you know, I, there's nothing more I can do here. And I, I communicated that to the investor group. And, uh, and then there's a whole kind of epilogue to the long, slow, painful 
uh, smoldering epilogue to the, you know, how everything unfolded after that. Um, but it ended up being, I became a key witness in the ASC trial and the report that I had drafted was documented and was submitted as evidence. And it, <laughs> it's, in retrospect, it's all kind of ridiculous. It's all kind of ridiculous, but that's, that was the wild west. You know, it's, it's interesting while West is, is exactly right. And, and when I think because many real estate investors listen to this particular podcast. I, I mean, there's a lot of lessons just in that whole story. And and first and foremost is that during great economic times, man, oh man, you can hide a lot of slack and a lot of, you know, you, there's a lot of things that you don't have to pay attention to when, when the market's great. It's the old case of when things are great, you look like a genius. And then of course, when things slow down, <laughs> you look like an idiot. So, you know, knowing that there's a middle ground to always pay attention to. And I mean, obviously, uh, maybe not obviously, I mean, there was a project like that breaks down because there's no liquidity, there's no cash that you run out of, you run out of dough. And, and a question as you're sharing or that story was, was there a way to save it if you could have got a, a cash injection that would have bought more time and let's say fired the existing guy, the the existing director, you know, get him off the off the team steering the ship, you know, get rid of the captain, bring in a yeah. shot of, of capital? Could it could it have been saved? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, like our whole strategy was look, this is right now it's bare land. Some of the land has zoning, some of the land has drawings, no actual development has started. Um, so there's no, there's so, just, it's all money going out. There's just no, that's right. yeah, there's nothing that's right. coming in. The investors have got their capital tied up and you're depending on development to move things forward and start actually making money. That's right. But there was, you know, um, there was equity. So like uh, every piece of land, the principal owned 35 to 40% of the equity. And so if you were to give up that 35, 40%, the land had some value. There was some prospect of, and we even had some investors who were willing to put in cash to get the debt off, right? So that was the point. It was like, let's deleverage this, these assets, and then it'll take some time, but at least we're not going to lose everything, right? So that was the approach. And there was some potential for that. It wasn't really strong, but it was what we had to work with. And, and there was some prospect that we could pull it off. It wasn't simple. So, so given your, all of this the details, you know, beyond this, what, what have you learned? Like what are, if you were going to share one or two or whatever key lessons here, Antoine, with somebody that's listening into this, do you have a couple of things that you're going, listen, if this shows up, don't do this. Do you have any of those kind of yeah. profound insights? Well, you know, part of why in this conversation, I'm going into some detail about that whole experience is because I joined Rain in late 2007 and so while all this was going on, I, I was being informed through Rain's education. And so that was really valuable for me. Like when I was sitting down next to that accountant, you know, Don Campbell's kind of emphasis on investment versus speculation was a lens that was informing how I was thinking about what I was looking at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So um, that's a big part of when I started. So from 2010 to 2011, I didn't do anything in real estate. But I started boring investments in 2011, 2012. And the whole focus was on cash flow and transparency, right? So when I set up my partnership agreements, I explicitly have a whole section there that talks about all the things that I can't do without 75% approval of the investors. I can't leverage the asset. I can't sell the asset. I can't secure debt against the asset. 
all of these things that I saw happening in the exempt market where the general partner had complete latitude to leverage assets without even even informing investors about it in some cases. I saw that like the emphasis on cash flow, conservative amounts of leverage, and, and extreme transparency with my partners. Those were kind of the three principles that I took away. And that were the pillars of how I designed the portfolio when I launched Boring Investments. So today, as you've evolving a, you know, and working on this particular model that you've got, you've taken all those lessons, you've brought them forward. You're actually designing the what you call your what do you what do you want to call them? Cultural? No, I, I've lost the term. Oh, just spaces that enhance cultural fabric. Cut, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So now is that that's also built on the philosophy of what you learned going through training and your life as a monk and and certainly the lessons that you learned along the way there something i want to go back to in, in you leave home at 17 years old and now you're an entrepreneur and i'm going let's not step over this a brief conversation at least about i, I i'm always interested in is what what did your mom and dad say they're going okay you know don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out like what are you doing like what are what are your parents in this conversation as a 17 year old heading to, uh, you know, be a snowboard guy in Whistler. Yeah, well, you know, my my parents were always kind of laissez-faire a little bit. Um, and my dad also, he left when he was 18 or something. Sure. And, or no, actually, he left when he was 15, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they were a little bit kind of thrown off by the whole monk detour. But, you know, it took them a few months to kind of settle in and for them to trust that I still have my wits about me. and then. Um, yeah, they 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 were quite supportive. My father actually came to visit me in Europe and traveled around in our van with us for a couple of weeks, and uh, we had a good time there. So they were always quite supportive. So your dad, you said, had built a, uh, some houses along the way, you know, one at a time kind of thing. So he obviously, at some level, had an entrepreneurial spirit that you inherited, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, my dad had the strategy of building a house, moving into it, and then selling it, moving into another house. <laughs> so every house he built, he lived in, um, and which meant we moved houses a lot when I was a kid. Um, so, but yeah, my dad was, you know, he trained as a draftsman. My grandfather built churches before my grandfather was a pastor. He ran a construction company. So yeah, it's it's there kind of in the background. Um, and my dad, you know, he. He always did different things. Like we had a four-year stint in Ontario and uh, there were layoffs in the oil sector. So he went out and launched uh, a couple businesses and bought a gas station and ran a gas station and a, a garage uh, repair shop for a few years that was profitable. And so, um, yeah, there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that. I was never really, I didn't really have much perspective on that or didn't learn much about those businesses, but it was, that was some context for sure. So as you go forward and you build the vision out, do you have, what is, do you have a grand vision? Is there, where do you see, where would you like to yeah. see Sparrow go? So the thing is after, after the whole exempt market experience, um, I, I kind of took a step back from real estate and 2011 and 10, 11, I, I was doing a lot of consulting work to startups in the social enterprise sector. So, um, and I, I became a spokesperson for the social enterprise fund which is a wonderful 30 million, I think they're up to maybe close to 40 million bucks now, uh, debt investment fund that started here in Edmonton 
that's actually a world-leading innovation. Uh, they do more social impact investment at the last uh, I saw the numbers than Van City does. And they're a two-person shop. The people who run that are, are incredibly hardworking. And they've invested in many, many social enterprises in Edmonton. One of the companies that they, two of the companies they invested in are companies that I ended up uh, co-founding. And uh, one of them is called Sainaval. So that's uh, the world's first green carnival. So it's a full-scale carnival midway that runs entirely on renewable energy. And that's a not-for-profit educational platform to teach about clean technologies and energy literacy. And so, uh, and then we launched a second company called Sustainatech. And Sustainatech is a, we build high-density commercial lettuce farms in shipping containers. And so that is a uh, hydroponic indoor agriculture uh, technology play. And both of those companies are thriving. Uh, where where are those I, companies? Where are those companies locating, located? In? We, we grew them up here in Edmonton, but they're just now moving to Toronto. So the office just moved to Toronto last month, and our whole team is now operating out of Toronto. And uh, they're both doing really well. And so, I, you know, those are the two high-risk ventures I mentioned earlier that I started boring as a hedge against. So when all three of them work, then that's, a, that's even better <laughs> than having to <laughs> Nicely. Well played, well played. <laughs> um, and so, you know, through all of that work, uh, working with Sustainable, working with Sustainatech, working with 20, 20 other startups, uh, helping them build their business plans and source funding and that kind of thing, that got me deeper and deeper into kind of understanding the social economic landscape of the capital region. It got me deeper and deeper into entrepreneurship and gave me line of sight into a range of different industries. And so I could understand how they're different and how they're similar. And so that was like a really broad, shallow, but broad and diverse uh, kind of expansion from the, the base I had built in understanding real estate and finance. And so it brings us back around to just much deeper questions about the future and about what does it take to build communities and cities that thrive and that are resilient in the face of a dynamic, changing global environment. And so um, these are some of the big questions that we're asking ourselves now because we can build buildings and whole districts with dozens of the best restaurants in the world, right? Conceivably, even here in Edmonton. If, but if we could accomplish that, but 20 years from now, there is massive crash in labor demand in Alberta, then no one's going to be able to afford to buy dinner. So we can't just build great cultural spaces and have our heads in the sand about the macro dynamics that influence the stability of the economy in the region. And so that has us kind of focusing on the other end of that spectrum I described earlier, which is operators whose work enhances the cultural, uh, sorry, uh, contributes to the resilience of the regional economy. And for us, that is um, technology companies, innovation, primary economic productivity, companies that are exporting to other regions, and also companies that, that work to build platforms to support the entrepreneurs who are advancing those types of initiatives. And the reason that this is relevant is because we're looking at the technologies that we know are going to be strong growth sectors, Right. All of the exponential technologies are poised for massive growth. They're going to be massively disruptive technologies that are going to cause chaos in a whole bunch of industries, which is a threat to Alberta. But whether or not we are, have a leadership foothold in these technology spaces 
we are exposed to the disruption of those technologies. So it's, if we're going to be disrupted by these technologies, at least let us be proficient in them and, and be able to benefit from leading in, innovations in these spaces. And so, you know, that's an interesting question for Alberta. What does it take to foster an economy in the capital region that produces a culture of innovation and is actually effective at building companies? And so I was talking to one of the directors at the EEDC, Edmonton Economic Development Corporation, and she was uh, telling me they're doing some really good, interesting work at the EDC, and she has a, is a new uh, leader there, and uh, I really appreciate her direction. But she was talking about a conversation she was having with a group of VCs out of San Francisco, and they were going on about the, all the hockey players we produce in Alberta. <laughs> and they said, they said, if you guys were only as passionate about entrepreneurship as you are about hockey, you'd be the innovation center of the world. <laughs> mm, interesting. Yeah. And I said to her, yes, but it's not passion. Maybe kind of passion is an important ingredient, but ultimately it's not that. Why do we produce so many hockey players in Alberta? The reason is because if you're into hockey and you're three years old or you're 30 years old, your next step in your trajectory with the sport is a micro step that has been mapped and quantified and has infrastructure built around it to support you making that tiny little step to the next threshold. And there, it, there's sophistication there. It might cost something, but if you want to progress through that trajectory, there are people who will support you on that path. The environment's created for it. The environment, the culture, everything is designed for that. That is for sure, especially in Alberta. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But we don't have that for entrepreneurship here and we don't have that for technology innovation. We have pieces of it, but in between those pieces, there are these massive gaps. And so people try to pursue a path and we've seen this because we're in this space, right? Like we run a hydroponic technology company. This is an advanced manufacturing, very sophisticated technology in these containers. My business partner in Sparrow runs an artificial intelligence company that does facial recognition for retail. And so we're, we're connected to these conversations on the exponential technology fronts. And we know how difficult it is to raise capital here. We know how difficult it is to source talent here. We know how difficult it is to partner up with companies on a client basis. Um, it's challenging. And uh, it's, it's actually quite embarrassing how, un, how primitive the venture capital ecosystem is in Alberta. It's embarrassing. The money in Alberta knows how to build buildings, how to move trucks and drill holes. And if you want a project that's in that space, if you want to look where the light is already shining, there's money. <laughs> but as soon as you get into higher risk uh, technology plays, they don't know how to underwrite those kind of initiatives and they get scared and they're like, it's, it's almost sad. And then if we go to San Francisco or New York, we have investors falling over themselves to put capital into our projects. And so these are all dynamics that need to advance in the region. And so we are, we are working on building a foundation in partnership with some key leaders in, the, in, the, in Western Canada uh, one of the most influential economists in Western Canada is part of that team. And this is at early stages right now, but this is really important to us. We, we, want, to in our, we want to develop our projects based on the intelligence that comes from the work that that foundation does. And, and our whole intent is to take that evidence, design our projects around the, that evidence, and have our projects be microcosms that... that weave together cultural fabric with these innovation ecosystems in 
mixed use commercial residential spaces. <laughs> Dude, so, you know, let, let me, okay. So first off, <laughs> I just love this conversation because of course, being, you know, born and raised in Alberta and being in business as many years as I have in Alberta. And oh, by the way, you know, knowing the hockey world, you, you, you know, it is, it is, gosh, I'm so on the same page and, and I could have this conversation a long time for you, but I want to just slow down one, something that you've said yeah. several times now is you're referring to us now. I'm assuming you run pretty lean, but who's who's part of your team, uh, Antoine? Like, is what do you have for a team? Yes, yeah, so Sparrow Capital right now has three principals, and we're just reviewing resumes today on our first executive assistant role, which will be the fourth person on our core team. Uh, my my the principals are um, myself, uh, Jarrett Campbell, who came on uh, a year and a half ago. Jarrett is a uh, prolific community activist. He was former president of Oliver Community League. He has a background in real estate development. He worked for Procura and then um, Brookfield for uh, quite a few years. He's a CA and he's also uh, a political uh, agitator. And so he's run a, a several municipal campaigns for some of the current uh, councillors that are sitting on city council. He's also run some provincial campaigns. He's involved with the Alberta Party and Stephen Men. He's a uh, one of the key people behind Stephen Mandel's initiative with uh, the Alberta Party. Um, uh, Jim Huth is our other partner. Jim Huth is a uh, very experienced uh, investor and developer. He has a, a large portfolio, of significantly larger than what I had built under Boring Investments. And he's a deeply, deep, like high integrity and deeply philosophical man. And so uh, we got along really great from the get-go. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> and uh, he brings a level of sophistication. Like I'm very comfortable with partnership agreements and legal contracts and securities and offerings, that kind of thing. But uh, Jim is an expert. And it, having him in the room when we have to think creatively through some, you know, in it, like, ownership structure or something like that always make puts everybody at ease because it's he makes it so easy to understand and and it's clear that he knows what he's talking about and so um he's brought a ton of capacity um and he also has done a, a lot more development work on larger projects than i have so that's really important with um with some of the development projects that we're undertaking so the, our core team is it's been um, this is all, and keep in mind, this is all pretty new. Like we, I rebranded Boring as Sparrow only in January of 2017. So we're at, we're at uh, 20, a little over $20 million of projects in the ground today. And really that's only in the last eight, less than 18 months. And we just signed off on the purchase agreement yesterday for a project that is the prototype that I was talking about a larger district scale development that incorporates mixed use commercial innovation and cultural components. Um, that'll be our largest project to date. Um, so this is all moving quite fast right now. So the experience of the last year and a half working with these two has been incredible. It's a wonderful partnership and that, that makes a big difference to, to have the people at the table that you love to be with who know what they're doing. So Antoine in the, as we have to wind this down, gosh, I, I know this is going to lead <laughs> this. <laughs> I'm so going to want to do a part two and catch up with you down the road. Um, but, you know, as we, a couple things that really stand out for me, you know, first and foremost, in the, in the context of seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results, I mean, there's just nothing seemingly ordinary about what you've done, but um, <laughs> it's really, really cool. And, and uh, been fascinated listening to you describe it, but 
what I'm always encouraged about when I talk to entrepreneurs such as yourself is that you don't see what's wrong with the world. You see what's right with the world and, and what you're going to take and do with it. And to me, that's incredibly inspiring. So, you know, thank you for that view of the world and sharing it today. It's been, it's been really great. Congratulations on the team that you've got yourself surrounded with in the direction you're going and, and congratulations on the success that you've had up to date. Uh, I'm sure if you haven't had a conversation with Don R. Campbell and what he's got going on with his uh, agroponics and aquaponics and all the stuff that he's happening, he, you really do need to uh, reach out to uh, Don Campbell. He's actually, he's on site today. He's uh, He and the team are borrowing uh, the uh, poolside studio that we I joke about with the Everyday Millionaire. And I've had to move my studio, as you know, we had a little bit of technical. He's here today and I'm going to actually, I'm going to, as when we, as we wind this out, I'm going to go say, Don, you got to connect with Antoine. So I don't know if you guys have connected yes. or not, but you definitely, we definitely need chat. To, we yes, should, we, we we share a love for hydroponics <laughs> and for economic macroeconomic geekery. So. Yeah, yeah, you guys <laughs> definitely need to connect. But I would be uh, I would be remiss not to uh, you know uh, I think traditionally you know wind this conversation down uh, as much as I don't want to, but we do have a couple of do a rapid fire segment at the end of my segments, just to have a little bit of fun and, uh, and sure. bring things to conclusion. So you ready for a little, a uh, little fun and some rapid fire questions? Sure. Okay. What's your favorite swear word, my friend? <laughs> swear word. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I like the F word a lot. <laughs> you, you drop F bombs like the rest of us. That's good. It seems to be a, a go-to for most. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? You know what? There's one of the, there's a poem by Emerson called the Rodora. I would recommend reading that poem, but the operative sentence in there is beauty is its own excuse for being. Hmm. Love that. What profession other than the one that you're kind of working on, would you like to attempt? If it wasn't this, what would you just kind of like? If I were, if I were to, if I were to have the bandwidth to, um, go and study right now, uh, like full time, I would dive into economics. I would dive into the history of economic thought and how we got to where we are today, because I know that everything about the global economy and the global financial system and the current version of capitalism that we're running as a software on that hardware, uh, is there for a reason and it's performed very well and it's, it's it's uh, it's succeeded through all kinds of selection pressures uh, to take the current shape that it has right now, and so it's to me it's always crucial to I say thank your ancestors, thank your grandparents. We have to look at the past and everything that our parents and grandparents went through to build the opportunity that we're faced with, um, not just the damage or the or the consequences, the unforeseen consequences that we're dealing with, but also all the facility that's been provided. And that's true, I think, as well, when we think about economics and capital. And then with a base in the history, I would dive into all of the brands of economic thought around how we're going to deal with uh, exponential technologies, massively increasing efficiencies in almost every industry vertical, and the impact that that's going to have on labor demand, and the impact that this will have on wealth understanding that every robot and every algorithm um, is capital. It's, it, it belongs to somebody. And the more 
the value in the economy is, is being generated from capital in relationship to labor, the more revenues will go to capital versus labor. And this can be a dangerous dynamic in the 21st century, and we need to be very cognizant of that. And I know that there are a, a bunch of ideas at various stages of development about how we might evolve into some version of capitalism 2.0 to address that. Um, and I would really like to, to dive into that and understand, understand those solutions. So for now, we're learning about it peripherally because it's being... We're, we're building our projects with in partnership with people who understand some of these things. And we're also learning about ourselves, but that would be, if I were, if I were to just go like pure blue sky and not have any uh, legacy obligations, um, I would just dive into, into researching economics. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm encouraged uh, in the world ahead with guys like you hanging around. <laughs> Uh, what are you not very good at? I mean, gosh, you, uh, you do a lot. What are you just not very good at? Yeah. You know, um, I, I have a broad skill set. Um, almost everything I know how to do. I know somebody who's not too far away from me who can do it significantly better than I can. <laughs> like I, you know, so I, I'm sign I've of a good a leader, sign of a good of leader. Cells. Yeah. Sign of a right. good leader. And so that's awesome. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I, you know, I think one of my biggest challenges is being patient, right? Um, it's like I see there's so much that I see that is possible and I want it to be the way it could be right now. And so um, learning to be patient with myself and learning to be patient with the unfolding of intent, that for me is a big part of the work. You know, just without going too deep into the discussion about it, I think you said it, you used the word trajectory and I'm a, a big fan of the word trajectory. A golf ball, you know, hit one millimeter out of whack at the tee is, you know, 300 yards out of whack down the fairway. And, uh, right. you know, the, it's always what we can do in setting our intention and moving things is to be aware of the trajectory that we are setting. And then we do have to be patient, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> sadly. <laughs> What's one of the most impactful books that you've read? Is there one that you've read that you would recommend? I would, it's hard to say pick just one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the books, so I would, Daniel Kahneman, everybody needs to read Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. There's a, basically a map of the heuristics, the mental shortcuts that we use to inform our worldview and our decisions. That book is brilliant. Uh, another book that I'm reading right now that is blowing my mind is a book by a man named Antonio Damasio. The book is called uh, The Strange Order of Things. And it is a book about understanding life. And he's basically making the case that before there were genes to inform evolution, there were feelings, meaning stimulus and response, even at the single cell organism level. And that, that ultimately, that stimulus response function is the selector for every form of complexity and, and complexity upon complexity. And uh, this is relevant to everything we just discussed because what happens when life increases in complexity is that it builds nervous systems. Some precursors to nervous systems in simple or communities of simple organisms like bacteria, but then ultimately in more complex organisms, there's nervous systems. And then when you have complexes of complexes, like a city, right? A city is a complex of complex of complexes. A city also needs to evolve a nervous system. And the challenge 
when the nervous system is not up to the task of sustaining the homeostasis of a complex system is the system starts to experience all kinds of pains. And what we're dealing with with the 21st century is complexity is increasing at an exponential rate. And our nervous systems or our systems of feedback and communication, the signals that, that by which a city regulates its own homeostasis, uh, that system is nowhere near fast enough to keep up with the pace of change. And so um, Damasio's book is fascinating from like the most fundamental existential questions about life and, and meaning all the way up to uh, what that means for leadership. Um, so Kahneman, Damasio, um, another really important author is Kevin Kelly, who's the founder of Wired Magazine. He wrote a book called uh, What Technology Wants and then several other subsequent books that follow on that theme. That is a brilliant uh, treatise. I highly recommend reading Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century to get a bit of an angle on what I was talking about before about the distribution of wealth as a function of capital versus labor demand. Okay, I only wanted one book. You're gonna we're gonna go yeah. through the library, dude. Like I, I'm making notes. I'm going. Okay, when am I gonna find time to read this one and this one? So thank you for that. Here, let let me let me also make one more comment. Please. For your listeners in relationship to um, consuming material. So Audible has a special membership that they don't advertise. It's a platinum annual membership. It costs something like 230 bucks. You get 24 credits. One credit is one book. So you're paying less than 10 bucks a book. Uh, you can renew at any time. So if you run out of credits in the middle of the year, no problem. You just add on another year. You need to look for that. It's called the uh, platinum audio membership. You actually have to go in and ask for it in a chat with, with customer support to get access to it. There's no place to actually click on it just to buy it. So then you get your books in, in Audible. Uh, one thing you can do, Audible might not approve, but if you have a couple people who you have a lot of conversations with about the topics of interest to you, you can jump on that account together and share books. Mm -hmm. Do you listen to your books at you know, one and a half speed? Yeah, yeah. So I'll listen to it at I'll listen to it at one and a half or double speed, yeah. but I'll be very free. I'll be very liberal in rewinding and listening yeah, to yeah, things over. Yeah, for sure. Cool, cool tip. Okay, favorite movie. Favorite movie. I really liked Interstellar. Great, great movie. That was a great movie. Ex Machina is also brilliant. Yeah. Do you have a favorite tune? Um, a single favorite song. I'm pretty eclectic in my music taste. I'm still a big Beatles fan. I like Blackbird. It's one of my favorite songs. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? <laughs> I don't know. Well done. Well done. <laughs> That'd be a good start. I was thinking about, you know, there's a, there's a book called, uh, uh, that Robin Sharma wrote that was called, I think, uh, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you need to come up with the title of a book. You know, it's like the monk who changed the world, or you know, changed right. Edmonton, or <laughs> did something. Yeah. Well, let's let's see what we can build. That we can, <laughs> let's that see what we, we can build. Trump it about the, yeah. the monk. Who, <laughs> the monk who built stuff. Anyways, right. <laughs> what are you grateful for? I there are a lot of people who have stood by me and just trusted me often even more than I trust myself. And, you know, my wife is a, is a, uh, one of those people for sure, like one of the most important people that has been a huge supporter. And, uh, and then my business partners 
and all the people in the community who step forward. So I'm grateful for people overcoming cynicism and, and who are willing to try something to make things right. And I'm grateful for having the opportunity to have this conversation with you, Anton. And uh, certainly I'll be grateful when we have another opportunity to connect and have some more conversation. Lots of things to uh, take on. And, and so I know my listeners will be grateful for uh, having this conversation as well. So thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy and uh, I appreciate the time that you've uh, given us here today. Awesome. Thanks, Patrick. That was fun. Okay, man. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time... Patrick out.